Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at the first six verses. We're going to look at the idea of encouragement. Encouragement. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, and I really got here. This, is, this isn't a brand new message. I'll be transparent. I preached this for Brother Tate in Florida. Um, but I've heard, I think Charlie even said it Saturday when we were here for prayer about being so easily beset by sin that's all around us. And, and this message deals with that a lot. It's not the message I thought I had for today. Uh, but it is the one the Lord seems to have for us to preach. And here in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 6, we have a, a strong dose of encouragement. So we're going to deal with the text, define encouragement, and then dive right in. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And that exhortation is where we'll finish there in verse 6. The exhortation is, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So something to consider here is that the Lord, as we go back into these first few verses, and we're going to deal a lot uh, with some of the major points, but just look at the, what's happening in these first six verses of Hebrews 12. Paul's laying out here the idea of shame and endurance and all of these things, but then he says, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And then it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? What is that joy set before him? We, we as Baptists know a lot about the cross. Uh, maybe not all there is to know, probably won't in this life, but what is that joy that's set before him? Well, I talked about it a little bit. Family. Having those whom he loved close or able to access him. That was the joy that was set before him. And because that joy was so great to him, he endured the cross. He endured the shame. He endured the humiliation. He endured the separation of himself from the Father because of the joy that was set before him. Paul's writing to those not unlike ourselves that hear what's happening in Pakistan and Burma and Tulsa and Dallas and New York. It's not just President Trump that's persecuted in America. But we see all of these things happening and Paul is writing to a group much like ourselves telling us to endure. We might say, well, that's not encouragement. I want a pep talk. I want him to tell me I can do it. Well, Scripture's clear. He'd contradict himself if he'd said that because you can't do it. I can't do it. I can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Well, I want to answer these tough questions, preacher, and I want to challenge and tackle mountains, preacher, and ask the Lord, beseech the Lord, but you won't do it on your own. You can't. It's impossible. So this word encouragement then must mean something else. Because if it was to pep talk someone, Paul would have done it. But he never does it in his writing. The word encourage does not actually mean to cheer someone up. Instead, it means to give someone courage. To give them that which they lacketh. And we see that over and over again in the Old and the New Testament. The giving of courage, the speaking of courage, the Call to remembrance of the times in which the Lord did answer the call of His people. We saw that in the previous chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, which most refer to as the Hall of Heroes, the Halls of Faith, the Heroes of Faith chapter. With that in mind, the key word in the chapter of Hebrews is endure. It's found in verse 1, which we just read. It's translated patience there. It's also in verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 20. That word endure or patience means to bear up under trial, to continue when the going is tough. 
And that was Strong's, not me. That's what it means. These Christians were going through a time of testing. Consider what Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 10. And we're just going to read verses 32 to 39 just to get the context of those he's writing to. He says, but call to remembrance the former days. There it is, that call to remembrance. Remember the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Our sister, Judy, up at the mission that just gave a profession of faith, she's enduring a great fight of afflictions now. And it's not necessarily her neighbors or her co-workers. It's simply coming home and looking at her own house. That's how it was for me. How did I get so far into this sin? And why do I have this sin draped all around my house like a bulletin board? This uh, enduring of inflictions begins with ourselves. God is holy, therefore I am to be holy, and I clearly never was. He says, partly while she were made a gazing stock or a spectacle, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. For ye had a compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. He says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience. You know that word. It's also translated endure. It's the word we just talked about, and it's there in Hebrews 10 as well. Ye have need of it, he says. This is just the beginning, he's saying there in Hebrews 10. And maybe for us today, this hour, it's also merely the beginning of what we are going to have to endure or go through with patience. knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better or an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. No, we don't believe in works-based salvation. Paul's not contradicting that here. But it does sound like there's something to do. If you're born again, and you've never told anybody about the Lord Jesus Christ, that's task numero uno. Do it in Spanish that way. There's no confusion. That's the first thing you have to do. I'm doing it in sign language too, back. That's the first thing. This is who I was. This is who he revealed himself to be. And there was a change. And look at who I am now. But there are none called to salvation to retire. None called to salvation to rest on their laurels for which they have none. That after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Then he says, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. For we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. I've read that verse before, and I like to think of it like this. We are not of the drawback persuasion. We are soldiers, if you think of the armor there in Ephesians 6, I'm sure you've heard of it before. Everything is described for the soldier except something to protect the hiney. There's nothing behind him. Why is that? Because the soldier presses forward. Everything described, that turtle formation we've talked about in the past, is a, a group of centurions or soldiers together arming the sides, even the top and the front, but nothing behind because they're marching forward. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. You ever march backwards? I was in marching band. It doesn't go well. Even with a saxophone, it's easier than a bass drum, but you don't march backwards too often. I guess bass drums do at times, the, the big drum. But Thankfully, Ephesians 6 doesn't talk about a bass drum anywhere. We have to march forward. It's the reason that we've brought attention to the role. It's the reason we continue to hear about uh, missionary efforts around the world today because we can't live on the missionary efforts around the world from 100 years ago. We can't support them. We can't be involved in them. We can't march with them, into them, or through them. It has to be now. What Baptists had done 100 years ago does not alleviate what we are required to do in 2024. We have to march forward. Some were tempted to give up. We see that in verse 3 of our text. Perhaps some of us here today are tempted as well. 
I want to offer the following encouragements for you today. Not that you would necessarily be cheered up, but that you might find the ability to endure in God's Word. First and foremost, and all of this comes right out of Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 6, have courage to lay aside every weight. We misunderstand this, I think, sometimes. We can do all things through Christ Jesus. That's a verse that's good and worn out a lot. But it is true. Paul said it. We can do all things, but we have to have courage to lay aside every weight. It's not as simple as, I don't want to smoke anymore. Punt. That's, if the Lord tells me not to do something, then I have to lay it aside. It is a weight. It is an easily besetting sin. And it doesn't matter what it is. If the Lord reveals it to be a sin, we have to have the courage to lay it aside. It's described as first, easily besetting sins. The word beset literally means skillfully surrounding. Easily besetting or easily skillfully surrounding sin. Devil knows what he's doing. It's not an accident he laid pornography in front of that one who's tempted by pornography. And it's not an accident that gambling or drug addiction or alcohol or whatever your pleasure is always easily available for the one who's weakest to it. But beloved, some of these sins we go after and we look for. We're dealing just right now with the easily, skillfully surrounding sins. In this life, we are amidst many snares. Y'all probably remember when we were going through Luke 17, verses 1 through 3, Jesus talked about those Christians that have been following a while. He was teaching on discipleship, but he told those who've been following for a while to be careful not to be the trap stick, not to be the stick stuck into the snare to set it off for the younger Christians or the new believers or those who are still drinking of the milk and not quite yet eating of the meat. You see, Christians, none of us are ever to the point where we say, I've been a Christian or a born-again believer long enough that I can play with these things because I know it's of the devil. If you know it's of the devil, you have all the more reason to not play with those things. That verse that we also quote quite often, the abstain from all appearances of evil, is a very powerful verse. And if you live by that, you won't play with these things that you know are of the devil. Because even he who has been saved for years and decades is still surrounded by skillfully, easily besetting sins. It says there in Luke 17, verses 1 through 3, and I only want to read it because I want you to pay attention to who he's talking to, who he's putting the accountability on. Jesus says unto the disciples, it is impossible but that the offenses or the scandalon, that trap stick, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. No, not woe unto the society that made it easy for it to happen. And no, not woe unto mom and dad who never told you it was wrong. Woe unto him. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And then he says, take Heed to yourselves. This is not him saying, mind your own business. Jesus is saying, uh, uh, there's enough sin for you to worry about with yourself first. Take heed unto yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. There's a lot of personal responsibility in forgiving other people, isn't there? The Lord gives probably the greatest example of born-again believers being a trapstick in the, in, in the realm of forgiving others because we feel some kind of ownership over someone when we are responsible to forgive them. We say, well, let's just see if they do it again. You know, four to six weeks, the time it used to take to mail a package from one place to another, if they haven't done this sin again, then I'll forgive them. But if they haven't done the sin again and they still give me the stink eye every once in a while, well, I'm, I'm not going to forgive them. They haven't learned their lesson. Who's required to teach that lesson? It's not us. If I have a problem forgiving my flesh and blood brother, I'm not responsible to teach him a lesson. The lesson's for me. I, unto myself, must forgive him because Jesus freely gave. That's the same word for forgive. He freely gave. He counted it a joy set before him. And as we've just read last week in Romans 5, what was set before him were still enemies, still powerless, 
still wicked and still wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, they chanted, crucify him, crucify him. Paul covers this more in Colossians 3 when he says, do all things as if unto the Lord. He even describes the believer as singing with grace in their hearts to the Lord. You can't do that with unforgiveness. You end up holding back. I would go as far as to say that you're going to struggle to tithe too because you're going to end up holding something back. Tithing, remember, is not just money, but also time. Jesus and Luke had to admonish the early church to be ready to forgive brethren. When Peter said, how often should I forgive? He said, if my brother shall sin against me, how often should I forgive? He wasn't talking about the publican. He wasn't talking about a Roman. He said, my brother. And Jesus had to admonish the early church to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. If we struggle to reflect the greatest thing Christ ever did for us, just how easily will we avoid other besetting sin? The second thing that's brought out here in Hebrews, in our text there, verses 1 through 6, is the impatience with the actual race, the running of the race itself. This race that we are on is taking place on the way of holiness. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 35, verse 8. You don't have to turn there, but mark it down. It's a wonderful chapter, and it's very prophetic, and I think you'll enjoy it. But he describes the way of holiness. This is a highway that has been rejected of men. Because men love darkness rather than light, which we read in John 3. We are called to keep this highway, to be holy, for he whom we serve is holy. We talked recently, I think on Wednesday, about Adam's failure to keep the garden. It's a struggle, men, for us to keep or to care for that which God has instructed us to. He's given us every, every T-bone steak we need to get good and strong to be able to do it. Right here in his word but we still struggle. So I was supposed to beat the pulpit after lunch, I was told. After lunch, I'm sorry, I'll do that later. My nephew, uh, not your kids, but James, Connor, he was really worked up one time. I, I hit my Bible, and he said, oh, Uncle Joe shouldn't hit the Lord's Word. And I really appreciated him calling me out on that. Didn't have to do it so loud in front of so many, but he did, and I learned my lesson. There are a lot of distractions when you go down a highway. More now than before, and way more on most highways than if you go through the Oklahoma Panhandle. There's nothing out there. Nothing. For about 110 miles, except tables on the side of the road. But most highways we go down now, there's Love's, there's McDonald's, there's uh, Bucky's if you're lucky. But there's a lot of things to stop. But, Brother David, what happens if you got a load, you got to get someplace by a certain time, and you stop at every Love's and every Bucky's and every McDonald's along the way? It sets you back, doesn't it? easily besetting temptations right along the side of the highway that cause for us to be impatient with the race. The distance didn't change. I still have to get to the finish line, but I've stopped so many times because of those easily besetting sins that I'm now impatient with the race. It now it's going to take me three days to get to Flagstaff now instead of 13 hours. Our course is clear. We are to stay on the path Jesus laid out. There is no religion that has the override key for the word of Christ. This is the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone that will follow. Whether they wear a yarmulke, whether they wear a Catholic hat, whether they wear a, a Buddhist hat, whatever. If they say they're following God, the actual God and creator of the universe, they are called to heed to this word. Well, but preacher, they disagree. They're not disagreeing with me. They're disagreeing with his word. I've disagreed with his word plenty. His old woodshed out back he takes me to from time to time to get me to agree with his word. He's not trying to change my mind on anything. His word doesn't change. It is forever. It's as immutable as he is. He lays it out for us in just Luke 4. And consider it. You can turn there if you want to. We're just going to look at Luke 4, Luke 4, 4, Luke 4, 8, Luke 4, 12. If you have a King James red letter Bible, it's literally the only three red verses in those first 12 verses of Luke 4. As the devil is tempting Jesus, he tells us what to do. Is Jesus equal with the devil or greater than the devil? He's much greater. He's 100% God. But he suffered temptation with the devil. Suffered as in he experienced it. Not that he was overcome by it, so that we could see what our counter is. 
so that we could see the race must be run. When the devil tempts him, he says, it is written in verse 4 that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You know what happens when we live by every word of God? We're not overcome by the theories of evolution. We're not overcome by the, the fears of global warming. I, I understand there's a blizzard in California. I understand that Texas is on fire and it's headed this way. These aren't the first fires and blizzards. This is the creation itself crying out for the return of its creator. Crying out for mercy as we should be. But what he's commanded, what he has illustrated is for us to live by every word of God. That's not every word of daddy or granddaddy or every word of the White House or every word of the king or whatever. It's every word of God. So when we've been derailed from the race, it's because we forgot that which we are to be fed and follow. Secondly, in verse 8, he says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Remember that place we talked about about a month ago that is the Lord Jesus's? It's his throne. And when we put other things there, it becomes what? An idol. It's got to be removed. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, marched into the temple, and man, he gave a tongue lashing to those guys that set up those tables to extort his people, didn't he? What else did he do? He flipped the tables. He wrecked their business. They were to worship God and God alone. Whatever you have on your heart, I don't have to know about it. Whatever you have on your heart, where Christ Jesus should be, he'll flip that table. If you're his, he'll flip that table. And if you're so dependent upon that idol that everything in your life protects it, it's going to wreck your life. It's going to hurt a lot. Walk away from your idols, beloved. Be ye separate. Come out from among them. It has no place in your heart and your life. Understand what's in your life that is a tradition of man and a commandment of God. They're not the same. But you have to distinguish it. Heed unto yourselves. Verse 12, he says, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Somebody's saying, Well, the preacher didn't read all the temptations of the devil. No, I didn't. Because these responses can apply to the temptations he's put on you. You can read the rest of Luke 4 and see what the devil put Jesus through. But those aren't applicable directly to us. I'm not going to reign except through Jesus Christ. He was offering Jesus, as we've referenced recently, the crown before the cross. And Jesus turned it down. Jesus had all authority, and he'll come back with all authority and commission the church. And that lines up with these three verses as well. But don't tempt the Lord. Don't say, I'm going to ignore these things. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to call whatever I want to do worship. Beloved, this is the greatest disaster, I think, of our lifetime. No, not the greatest generation. Not the millennials. But everyone in this room. We've allowed the world to think that just about everything is worship. The Bible's clear that's not true. He's very clear. It's in spirit and in truth. And where truth is lacking, it's not worship. It might be a Bible education. Maybe. I sure hope so. But it's not worship. And what Abraham went through with Isaac is diminished when we call everything else worship. He worshiped God the day he took his son up to die at the commandment of God. He faithfully put the will of God above his own. That is worship. Showing up to buy a coffee in the lobby and sitting down for some rock and roll music that's called Christian, that's not worship. It's very different. But now we're allowing generation after generation to think that's it. That's worship. And all those others just don't want me to be happy. This ain't about being happy, beloved. We are sinners. We are totally depraved and we require redemption. That stuff does feel good for a while. It won't feel good at the judgment seat. Stop thinking about the derriere. Stop thinking about the flesh. You got the most flesh back there. I'm sorry. I have to use that as an example. Stop worrying so much about discomfort in this life and start thinking about the next. It's coming very, very soon. Just like Satan attempted to do with Jesus, he most assuredly is doing with us. But be patient, brethren. Bear up under trial. 
Continue when the going gets rough. The same Jesus that endured that trial, that endured that cross, is where we draw our strength. Thirdly, eyes holding fast to Jesus. This is in our text. How do we get through these tough things? Eyes holding fast to Jesus. When you're learning how to... You're here. Can I use you as an example? Learn how to ride a bike. And our road at the time had a little... Little, where, the, where the mailman would go up to the mailbox, there's just a little little tiny path that's been worn out. And as kids on our bikes, we used to call that the bat cave. And we'd go flying through there on our bike. And if you're, if you're watching your big brother as you go through that tunnel, you're probably going to make it through. If you're watching that mailbox, you're probably going to hit it with your face. It's important holding our eyes fast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's that finish line? It's Jesus Christ. It's the open arms of the tree of life. It's promised at the end of Genesis 3, revealed at the end of Revelation. He's there. Well, well, preacher, that hasn't happened yet. That's a revelation of the future. Well, Jesus is outside of time. That has happened because he's immutable. He's not changing. That's happening. That's right. It's as good as happening, as good as happened. It's going to happen. And if you are born again, you're there. You won't have lost your salvation by then. That's impossible. So it's happened. Happening going to happen. It's all the same all at once. If we hold our eyes fast to that and realize that it will not be diminished, then all the stuff that we're going through here is a distraction. It's easily or skillfully besetting sin. All of our responses the Lord gave the devil there in Luke 4, it applies to us in every situation. I'm not to eat the bread of the world. I'm to eat the word of God. I'm not to worship the idols of the world. I'm to worship God and God alone. Beloved, when we continue to set our sights on Him, we'll not be tempting Him. We'll be following Him. We'll be desiring Him. We'll be longing for Him. Acts 1.8, the powerful promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I must go. He's coming. He's coming for you. That's the same comforter that we have. We then can and must hold fast to Jesus. If we were to take a journey... By boat or plane or car, or you know, the example we gave earlier, Brother O'Neill running a route. Like, likely, like we did on our vacation, he put in the in coordinates of where he's going. He has his heading. That's where I'm going. If Giovanna says, Well, instead of Flagstaff, I want to stop by Chicago first, he's probably going to say, Probably not. That would derail our heading. That's not our final destination. Suddenly, all the stops are planned to coordinate, if he takes any at all with that final destination, because that's where I'm headed. Our journey started uh, closer to Toledo, Ohio, but it incorporated Mantachi, Mississippi, and it incorporated Tulsa, Oklahoma, and though the geography doesn't seem like a straight line, I'm headed to the same destination I always was. At the end of this journey, I, and I'm a, you ask my family, I'm as efficient as you can when it comes to traveling. I don't want to stop if I don't have to stop. I want to get to Jesus. Every turn, every decision would be with that final destination in mind, drawing us nearer, nearer, nearer to our precious Lord. Has the Lord revealed to you that you are his? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're born again? You have your heading. It's Jesus Christ. It's to sit at the foot of his throne. It is to bask in his heavenly light. All these other things are easily besetting sins. All these other things are ankle weights. They're going to slow you down. The second thing to consider is to look under the starting and ending points of our faith. The text says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. The Father's will was always Christ's reason for coming into this world. He did a lot of things while he was here, but his Father's will was at the root of every conversation, at the root of every miracle. Think of the healing of Lazarus. Who did Jesus pray to? Who did he give thanks to? Every time he went to the Mount of Olives, it was uh, another conversation with his Heavenly Father. It was the starting point and the ending point for him. And if he's our example and we're being considered or, or, or being encouraged to consider the author and finisher of our faith, let's consider him first as our example. What did he do? What was the beginning and end of his mission? The Father's will. 
the Father's will, the Father's will. When the cup got so heavy and so burdensome that the disciples could no longer stay awake and pray, it was still of the utmost importance to the Lord Jesus Christ that the Father's will be done. When all the nation of Israel turned their backs on Jesus, their Messiah, who was being hoisted to the cross, crucified at their command, it was still the Father's will. Understand, of course, that He was around before the foundation of the world. He'll be coming again soon. The Father's will, though, also existed before the foundation of the universe and will outlast every single one of us. It's the beauty of true immutability. It never changes and it's everlasting. With that as his destination, he found joy enduring my cross. With that as his final destination, he took upon him my despicable shame. You might say he could endure or do all things because he was strengthened by his mission. What is our mission? What is our purpose? If we began in Christ, and Paul says in Philippians, we end in Christ, to Christ be the glory, whether we live or die, then He is our mission. I was a contradiction to Him, yet He made straight my path. My mind can draw strength, not weakness, from the fact that He did those things for me. He endured those things for me. Can I endure this tribulation? What's he say at the end of John 16? My favorite verse, John 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. In the world they'll be easily, skillfully besetting sins. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That beautiful verse circles back on itself, doesn't it? When he says, I have overcome the world... It goes back to the beginning where it said, In me ye have that peace. It means we do too. Third and lastly, forget not the exhortation of our Lord unto you. The conclusion of the text says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth, and scourgeth every son whom he received, or receiveth. Our text promises that chastening and scourging will come. If the Father has received us unto himself, one, because man has rejected God and they hate the light, but two, we have to be refined. Raise your hand if you're a perfect Christian. I won't tell anybody. Nobody raised their hand. There are no perfect Christians. If an opening is left to the devil, beloved, he will fill it. Abstain from all appearances of the evil one. Hear this again. If an opening is left to the devil, oh, he plays dirty. He doesn't pull punches. He's sneaky and crafty. But if an opening is left to the devil, even on the darkest street at your most vulnerable, he will fill it. Who is your strength? Who is your defender? Where does your hope reside? If it's in this life, it's weak. It's deteriorable. It will come apart. I hear stories like what we heard at the boys' home, like what we just heard about Burma. And I'm continually thankful for even the smallest of mercies that I have nothing to do with. And it makes you feel selfish but any one of us could have been born into the situations that he described this morning. We talked about the same thing after our tour at the boys' home. Any one of us could have been born into the situation those boys were born into. Susie, even worse, any one of them could have been born Catholic. And yet if the Lord loves you enough, it's not a barrier. Our weakness is not going to break him down. But his strength can hold us up. Eliphaz told Job in Job chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 17 through 22. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Job 5, starting in verse 17. Not all of his friends gave great advice, but I think there's some, some wisdom in the counsel that we read here. He says, Behold, 
Happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. For he maketh sore and bindeth up. He woundeth and his hands make whole. He shall deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven. There shall no evil touch thee. In famine he shall redeem thee from death. And in war from the power of the sword. Thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. Neither shalt thou be afraid of destruction when it cometh. At destruction and famine thou shalt laugh. Neither shalt thou be afraid of the beast of the earth. Have courage, is what the writer's saying. This counsel that he's giving Job, who's lost all his wealth, lost all his livestock, lost, lost what we would probably say today his entire life. He lost it all. Everything that he could ever, if he, if he was selfish about it, anything he could have said, I worked my tail off for this, this, and this, it's gone. To the point where the boils and the festers on his skin are so bad he's using a pot shirt to, to pop them for some kind of relief. And his wife says, why wouldn't you just curse God and die? Just be done with all of the suffering. Don't go get your wife like that. You all have heard me say it before regarding the situation with Rebecca's health. But it applies to every one of our situations everything we will ever endure or go through. Job essentially says, should I not also have evil from this God who's given me so good, given me so much, who loves me so dearly, should I not also endure evil? I'm wicked. I'm depraved. The suffering of loss reminds me of the goodness of the gift of grace. There will be those who tell you, just like Job's friends were telling him before this, you must have sinned. You must have offended God to be treated so wickedly. I have already sinned against God so much so that I should not endure any mercy from God. Amen. We got it reversed, beloved. It's not about what I will do one day and then have to suffer for. It's that I'm already too sinful from birth to exist in the eternal kingdom of heaven. I required redemption from the Lord Jesus Christ. That refocuses my eyes and my mind on every word of God. That unseats every idol I put here and puts him back on the throne. That causes for me to truly worship because I understand it's all Jesus or it's nothing. The Lord loves his elect so much that he will not permit them to remain unclean. He wants them all for himself. When we look at things like the church role and, and trying to straighten this thing out, it's hard and it's sad. But God loves his people so much he doesn't let them wander forever. Forty years though, preacher, the Israelites wandered. Joshua 19 says they got there. The generation that perished were unfaithful. They believed an evil report instead of the promises of God. Should they only receive good things? We found black mold in the parsonage. I'm not going to permit black mold to exist in my home. And the inspector came out and explained the process of addressing the uncleanness. And he says we've got to find the root cause, the depth of the spread. We've got to cut it out. And as we keep cutting things out, we've got to stop, let it rest, and then test and clean and cut again if more mold is found. Cancer is treated the same way. Necrotizing fasciitis is too. Ask the Hillies. The surgeon, I was there when he told Cassie, we have to go back in. And if there's more necrotizing fasciitis, we have to cut it out. Whatever it costs us, it has to be cut out and removed and cleaned. There cannot be life and necrotizing fasciitis in the same body. We have to save what we can and discard the rest. Beloved, if you're so insistent on keeping that idol right there, it'll be the same for you. You will cut and remove, cut and remove, cut and remove. Think about what happened over the last six months with a certain uncle. He's cut and removed, cut and removed, cut and removed. It'll be the same thing for the practices in your home, the same thing from your worldly relationships. You're saying I can't be friends with anybody in the world? Not at all. But you are gods at all time. You are never not gods. You are always gods. He's not going to permit you to go into the, the, the prostitute 
dorms, whatever they live in, wherever they're at. He's not going to allow you to live however you want to live and then say on Sunday, I'm clean, fresh as a daisy. He will cut that out. He will make you clean, fresh as a daisy. Where we're at in the Lord's uh, ministry, we've seen the same exact thing. James and John, the sons of thunder, the Boanerges say, I want and desire to sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, will you drink from my cup? Will you suffer as I, will you go through the same baptism that I have gone through? They don't even know yet what they're about to go through. They're not prepared for it. And remember, they're missing the lesson that he is their portion. That he is the gift of God. That sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, he is the one for the elect of God. He is the only path, the only life, the only truth, the only way to the kingdom of heaven. Everything else has to be cut, cleaned, and removed. Well, then I don't want to be born again. Logic would say you never were if you could say those words. Because you can't lose your salvation. That's not scriptural. But that's going to cost me a lot. Not near as much as it costs the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my friends are out there doing those things. They'll have their reward. Go give them the gospel. You already know of a people that need to hear about Christ Jesus. Go to the highways and to the hedges. Tell them about Christ. That dead rich man longed for a drop of water on his tongue and for somebody to go tell his brethren. Somebody to go warn them of the suffering he's enduring because he's not leaving. He hasn't. He's still there. He was there when Judas arrived. The process is excruciating. And for those going through it, there is no means by which you can hope to be cheered up. You long for the true definition of encouragement. Not just some smile and a joke. It's not going to do much for you. If it's of the Lord, this experience is for our own good. If it's of the Lord, those that you know in your life that are suffering, it might be for their own good. The Lord might be removing something for them from their lives that is hazardous to the walk He has set them on. Give them courage to endure. This is what we do. We are all on this race. God loves His own enough to providentially lay out meticulous plans for their care, for their purifying Because he's holy. We must be holy. It's not an option, is it? That's not even a question. He doesn't say, for I'm holy, you ought to consider it. I'm holy. Man, you you got to try it out sometime. He says, you're holy. You must be holy. That's why Christ went to the cross. For us to be holy. That's why we have to die unto ourselves. Because we've got to be holy. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, He it is that doth doth go with thee. He will not fail thee. He will not forsake thee. That's encouragement. That gets you strengthened. Hebrews 10.39, and we'll close with this. It's written to the same folks. So consider what Paul's saying here. Hebrews 10.39, We are not of them who draw back unto perdition. I want you to hear that phrase and just think about it for a minute. Paul's not saying you really shouldn't do it. He's saying it's not an option. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition. We are his. Amen. We are his. We cannot self-draw back to perdition. We can't be sent back unto perdition. We cannot lose that which we've been given. We're not of the drawback persuasion. We are, though, as it says at the end of that verse, of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Beloved, it is my prayer, if you remember nothing else from this message, that you recall what is most important. It is not your flesh. It is not your comfort in this life. It's better for us, and this is in Scripture, to suffer, to serve in this life, 
that we might point others to where the soul is residing. Think of Deacon Stephen. It's a sabotage jury that was sent to him in Acts 7. It literally says at the start that they were sent to find him guilty and to sentence him. And Paul was given authority from the chief priest to go ahead and act on that. Once you've gotten the proof of guilt, do it. Extinguish it. And Deacon Stephen goes forward and gives a sermon from beginning to end of how the Israelites, God's chosen people, people of promise, the Israelites have forsaken God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And their flesh got so riled, and it wasn't because Christ Jesus was on the throne of their hearts. It was because they didn't want to hear about Him. He could have just simply said Messiah instead of Christ Jesus, and they would have still stoned Him to death. Why? Because that was the path that they were on when they got there, and it was never diverged. It was never changed. Well, preacher, that means the Lord allowed for Deacon Stephen to die. He did. There's a lot of things in that psalm you read this morning that the Lord allowed for. Think of those plagues. Who sent them? Oh, the preacher, the cows came back. They got beat up with hailstones, but they came back. No, they didn't. The crops came back. Certainly the Lord wouldn't allow crops to perish. They've never offended anybody. No, they didn't. This is a God of judgment. And He's judging our souls. At the end of all this, He's not concerned about our flesh either. He's told us to crucify it. But our souls will be judged forever. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, this is one of them hellfire brimstone moments you hear about all the time. This book is real. Amen. The sentencing in this book is real. There's a real hell coming. And it doesn't matter if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris disagree with it. It doesn't matter if every politician is an atheist lunatic. It won't change the reality of this book. It won't change the coming of our Lord and Savior. It won't change this tribulation period that's about to begin. It won't change the suffering that has already gone on for thousands of years in hell. I hope you know the Lord Jesus. I hope I'm preaching to a bunch of saved people that this is just the, the 15th time you've heard it. I hope the Lord lights your, your heart and mind on fire that you serve Him like you've never served Him before. But the fact of the matter is we look at our churches and we see people disappearing. We see people walking away. We see concerns like this one where the truth is delivered, the truth is heard, the truth is scoffed at, the truth is ignored. Beloved, this might be the only time you ever hear the gospel. This might be the last time in which the Lord's churches are open. Think about the reality of 2024. Is it that unrealistic that the SWAT team doesn't come out here this week and shut us down? Is it that unrealistic? I would have said in the, when I first surrendered to preach, oh man, that's never going to happen. While older men who were, uh, her grandfather Jim Wilmoth was telling me it's coming. And even as a preacher, I said, well, probably not in our lifetime. That doesn't seem likely at all. It's way worse than being considered not essential. And that was only four years ago. What is the reality of your situation? Your salvation can't be dependent on me. I'm the first one they'll shoot. Who's the pastor? That problem solved. What will you all do? What you should do, men, is teach in your homes. As if the lives of your kids depended upon it. Because everyone in this room, whether you have little children or adult children, they were born in a better situation than the ones we just watched. We have no excuse to have not told them about Jesus. Amen. It's easy to receive here. They have to travel so far to give the means of purified water. We have everlasting life water. Who have we given it to? Who have we shared it with? What are we doing with what we've been charged with? At the end of the day, we'll handle this like church business. We'll handle it the way it needs to be handled. And I'll contact these folks. 
Somebody, most of them have never met before. And I will plead with them and love on them and invite them to come back and hear what the Lord has been doing here and hear what the preacher's preparing for us at the end of April. But what did they see from 74 until the year they left? What did they see their entire childhood at home? What did they see you doing in the community when something wrong was happening? Did you take a stand? Did you teach the Bible in your homes? I'm not trying to shame you, but I am trying to defend this sermon. The three things he says in Luke 4, we need to do it. Their lives depend upon it. Their hearts and souls are going to be tried. This young man right here is going to be 18 this summer. And this world is crap that he's going to be launched off into. It's been trashed by our own depravity, by our own weakness to carry the gospel or disinterest. He's going to face the worst of our children. Maybe they spat in your face, but he's not related to them. He's going to want to get married one day. And in 2024, his greatest fear isn't that he's going to marry somebody who believes in Christmas or doesn't believe in head covering like we do. But rather that he doesn't even find a Christian woman at all. Christian women in America have just as high of a divorce rate now as lost women. This is the world that my kids are coming up in. We did this. Malachi wrote with a burden of the Lord. He said, I have to. And he says, I have to write to you about things that you're not going to like. Because you've robbed God. Well, where have we robbed God? You'll say that too. In tithes and offerings, in time, what's 10% of your day? You've given two and a half hours to the Lord every day? I hope so. Because it's not just for you. It's for your wives. It's for your children. Do you think on the Lord that often? 15 hours, 16 hours a week. We help you out here by giving you, especially now with this sermon, giving you a couple hours off of those 15 in corporate worship. But it's not supposed to stop here. Neary, Isaac, Laney, Zeb, Livy, they need to see us living outside of here like Christians. Otherwise, they're going to walk away too. I promise you, I won't be able to stop them. We've seen it too often. I don't long for them to go but I can't be what keeps them here. If we have to guilt you here, we'll have to guilt you here. If I am what saved you, then I have to keep you. So if you're here and you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to start telling somebody about it. He's coming. And man, it seems like he's coming so soon. So soon. Uh, people theorize 